LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. Yes. When those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> you're here. You're here already. No. Uh, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The thing. That's we the didn't problem. realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and didn't realize <laughs> well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how oh. lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hello, welcome to a very special bonus episode. Now, this is not an episode of Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and that's why it's coming to you outside of our regular programming. I am, however, Liv, here for this introduction. Today's episode is, in fact, an episode of Ancient History Fangirl, the podcast hosted by my good friends Jen and Jenny. This episode is from two years ago, but it's particularly appropriate now. Saturnalia was the Roman festival that happened this time of year and was a precursor to Christmas and other later holidays. This episode covers the festival, but also so much of Roman mythology, so much of the Roman mythology behind the festival. I even learned a lot, since it includes lots of Roman mythology that diverges from its Greek origins. It's one of their most fun and fascinating episodes, and given all we've talked about lately is Rome and Roman mythology, Aeneas this, Aeneas that, I thought it was particularly appropriate. Also, it's December, so yo Saturnalia! Enjoy, and make sure to subscribe to Ancient History Fangirl wherever you're listening to this now. This is the bonus episode, Yo Saturnalia, an episode of Ancient History Fangirl. 
Saturnalia! Yo, Saturnalia! <laughs> It's our second Ancient History Fangirl seasonal episode, and this one is all about Saturnalia. Wish you had a holiday all about feasting, drinking, the upending of the social order, blood sacrifices, the harvest, pranks, novelty gifts, honoring a god who devoured his kids, and the returning sun. Don't we all? Welcome to Saturnalia. <laughs> of course we all do. Why don't we have this holiday? Why, Slenderman? Why? Is there no Saturnalia in my life? Well, there is now. Yeah. We're feeling particularly festive this week, possibly because we've been celebrating Saturnalia since the 16th, possibly because we've had a little bit too much spiked eggnog, or maybe because Jen only has one more day of her day job left for the rest of 2016. Woohoo! See you in 2019, day job! The winter holidays are coming, or they've just passed, and we wish you a very happy one, whichever one you celebrate. Christmas, Hanukkah, Ramadan, Solstice, Kwanzaa, New Year, Festivus. But for now, we want to talk about one of our favorite Roman holidays, maybe our favorite Roman holiday, Saturnalia. Most people think of Saturnalia as the Roman version of Christmas. And while that's kind of true, Saturnalia was so much more. Saturnalia helped influence aspects of the traditions we associate with Christmas and New Year's, traditions that are still carried out to this day. But it's reductive to say that Saturnalia was Roman Christmas. So what was Saturnalia and why did the Romans celebrate it? To understand the holiday, we have to go back into the depths of Roman mythology and look at the story of Saturn. Wait, 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 wait. Is this going to be a mythology episode? This is a history podcast. But I love mythology. Well, you're in luck because we do get to talk about the god Saturn and his wives who are, as far as I know, mythological. Yo, Saturnalia! Yo, Saturnalia! (laughs) (laughs) So... Saturn was the original king of the gods. He corresponds to Cronus in Greek mythology. And if you're not a mythology buff, like me, then it's important we tell you the story. And it's a gory one, because who doesn't want to start the holiday season off with some baby eating? Sounds awesome to me. Ancient history fangled not condone baby eating. Right, please do not eat your babies. Saturn originally started out as the god of the harvest and agriculture. He ruled during the Golden Age when there was plenty and nobody ever starved, until a prophecy came along and said that one day Saturn's son would overthrow him. And Saturn was not pleased with this news because Saturn remembered how he had come to power by castrating his own father and taking his place. Because his father, Uranus, was kind of a jerk. Constantly getting his wife pregnant, then locking up their kids because they were hideous. Were they hideous? They were. His kids were the original titans. They were the many-handers. They were cyclopses. They were sort of like some of the original Greek mythology monsters. And this like broke Gaia, who is his wife. It broke her heart. And he also like imprisoned them deep in the earth. And because Gaia was both the goddess of the earth and also the earth, this was kind of equally painful, like physically painful for her. Yeah, this sounds like a really dysfunctional family relationship. And also you just have to love your kids as they come, you know? Maybe they have a few extra hands or not enough eyes or, you know, whatever. But it was awful and painful. And, you know, Uranus got what was coming to him. 
Right, because when Saturn finally took the side his mama gave him and castrated Uranus, Uranus's blood made a series of monsters and his genitals made Aphrodite. So basically, it was all Uranus's fault. His bodily fluids created monsters. And Aphrodite. Anyway, so now there was a prophecy against Saturn that his own son was going to come for him someday, and this filled him with a sinking dread. And little by little, Saturn devised a cunning plan to keep himself from ever being overthrown. And by cunning plan, I don't mean a vasectomy or abstinence because those would make sense. Yeah, no, that's not where he went. Saturn's epic plan was to continue living his life exactly the way he'd always lived it. And every time he got his wife, Ops, pregnant, he'd wait until she had the baby. And then when she wasn't looking, he'd eat the newborn child, which is just the worst of all worlds, isn't it? This poor goddess, he knocks her off. And then she goes through the pain of delivery. She's carried this baby for however long you carry a divine baby. And then once it's born, instead of getting to like have an amazing experience raising her child this monster just eats the baby when she's not looking that's awful and okay maybe like one time you're like all right well there was a prophecy we're not gonna have any more kids i'm deeply upset this is not okay let's try and move forward no 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 like 20 minutes later she's pregnant again it's perpetually being pregnant and then having your children eaten like this is what passes for birth control for the gods You'd think that they were gods, they have divine power, they could think of a better method of birth control, but no. Like the pull-out method, there's still that. The rhythm method, I don't know. I mean, I worry what would happen. (laughs) If you pull out, you might create some monsters with your excess seminal fluid. (laughs) So I guess that's not the greatest solution. No, let's just not. Let's just not. We know what happens. Ops, maybe it's time to cash this one in. I totally agree. And so did Ops. She loved her kids and she was sick of getting continually pregnant and then watching her husband eat her babies. Understandable. So she hatched a plan to conceal her youngest child and to trick her husband into swallowing a rock wrapped in swaddling clothes. So I have questions about that. Why did she let him swallow three or four other babies before thinking of this? And how did she convince Saturn that a rock in swaddling was a baby? I'm confused. The reality is there are big plot holes in mythology. And some of it is lost because these were oral traditions that were passed down and passed down. And finally, the versions we're reading have been changed. They filtered through the years. And this plot hole just maybe had an answer at some point in time and maybe didn't. There's a really great Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode. Uh, We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Where Lucy Lawless is guest starring as Xena. And she's at a comic con. And people are asking her questions. And they're like, in episode 323.5, in one scene, you were wearing a red wig and in the next scene you had blonde hair what happened there with the continuity and she just said every time something like that happens a wizard did it and i feel, <laughs> and i feel like that's kind of true for mythology every time you see a plot hole a wizard did it we've spotted the wizard infestation in the ancient greek mythology and ancient roman mythology it's everywhere wizards. All right. So anyway, Ops managed to get her husband to eat this rock and think it was a baby because wizards. She was successful in sparing her youngest child, Jupiter, and he was sent to Crete because Crete was somewhere Saturn just was not aware of for some reason. Jupiter grew up in a cave and when he was old enough, he waged war on his father, just like the prophecy said he was going to do because Jupiter going to Jupiter. And if this story sounds shockingly familiar to you as the story of Zeus and Kronos, it should because it is. The Romans pretty much copied that origin story for their own lexicon, because cultural appropriation was basically what they were good at. Jupiter overthrew his father, forced his dad to vomit up his siblings who were still in there somehow and still alive because gods, and then Jupiter threw his dad out of the Roman version of Mount Olympus and became king of the gods, and Saturn became a refugee god. 
Saturn was left to wander the Mediterranean until he came across Latium, or the region where Rome was founded. And once he got there, he offered his services to the people, the future Romans, as the god of the harvest. And while he ruled, he brought about another golden age. So that's how a god who was famous for eating his children became a refugee and in his old age, a god of plenty. But Saturn never really forgot his dual nature. He was a guy who could give plenty and who could deny a harvest. And also, he was someone who could eat his own children to retain his kingdom. He was a god who could bring a new golden age, and he was someone who was rejected by his own family. Saturn was just a mess of contradictions. In Roman mythology, Saturn is associated with two goddesses, Ops, the goddess of plenty, and Lua, the goddess of plague and destruction. Both goddesses do a good job of highlighting the fractured nature of Saturn. He was someone who could give so much to humanity, but he could also take it all away. This is probably why the statue of Saturn spent most of the year bound up in ropes in his own temple. The ropes were there to keep Saturn's dark nature in check. They were only removed during Saturnalia. You can still see the remains of Saturn's temple in Rome today. It's at the west end of the Forum, eight huge columns. The remains of the porch of the temple are still intact today at the Clivus Capitolinus. This temple dates back to the earliest records of the Republic around the 6th century BC. Yeah, that's really old, Jen. It's super old. We'll put a picture of it in the show notes. It's the most famous photo you see from the Forum is, is Saturn's temple. It's a building that dates back to the very beginning of Rome's recorded history. So I'm not sure about the age of all of the buildings in that area of Rome, but it might be one of the oldest. Mm, I imagine it probably is. Yeah, I haven't done any research on that, so that could be totally wrong, but it's what I'm thinking right now. So that's who Saturn was and why he was so important to the Roman people. Saturn was the guy who brought them a good harvest and whose favor they needed in order to survive. Jupiter might be the king of the gods right now, but Saturn was the one who made sure there was food on the table and a baby in every pot. I mean, I've told her that they didn't eat babies several times, but she insisted on putting that in the episode, so we're just going to ignore it. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) a baby in every pot, you know, the Saturn promise. And I'm just saying there is no research that says the ancient Romans ate their babies. I'm just saying the story had to come from somewhere. We're going to agree to disagree. Okay, we're going to move on from this whole weird speculative. The reason why we took this detour is because it's important to know the reason for the holiday. A lot of the research I looked at really focused on how much fun Saturnalia was, but totally glossed over who Saturn was. And how can it be Roman Christmas without talking about the god of baby eating? Yeah, it's not Christmas without baby eating. No one is suggesting that you eat babies for Christmas. Again, this is your PSA from Ancient History <laughs> Fangirl. I love that we have to have keep issuing these PSAs. Please do not eat your babies for Christmas. We do not endorse that behavior. <laughs> That's who Saturn was. And as for why he got his own festival after the winter solstice, it would be time to think again about the planting and growing season. And a good harvest meant life or death. After the winter solstice, the sun would start to come back and warm up the earth. And you wanted to stack the deck in your favor ahead of the planting season by honoring the right God at the right time with the right sacrifice in the right order. You just have to have your shit together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's literally life and death. Saturnalia was a festival that brought normal life to a halt. While the festival ran, all public business, government courts, schools, etc. were suspended. Yes. 
It makes total sense that this festival took place in December because this was one of the few times of year where the days were short, the fields were done being planted, and people would have some time on their hands. It was the perfect time to cut loose, celebrate the gods, and engage in a seven-day piss-up with your friends and family because why not? That's the who and the why, and now we're going to get into exactly what happened at Saturnalia, or the fun part. Saturnalia kicked off on the 16th and ran until the 23rd of December, a seven-day vacation. Although these dates varied a lot over the centuries. Sometimes it was shorter. Augustus famously limited the festival to three days so that the courts and government didn't have to be closed any longer than absolutely necessary. Because Augustus was a Grinch. That's just a great description of him. He was. He was an efficient, ruthless leader, but he was a bloody Grinch. Caligula then extended the festival to five days because Caligula loved a good party, which if you listen to our last episode, you'll know just how much Caligula loved a good party. He really did. I mean, say one thing for Caligula. He was fun if you were, I guess, not an, an aristocrat and if you were not one of his sisters. The only time Caligula was fun is if you were Caligula. <laughs> Caligula was fun for Caligula. And no one else. Moving on. In later times, Saturnalia ran into Sol Invictus, or the Feast of the Unconquered Sun, making one super long week to fortnight of celebration. And a fortnight, for those of you who aren't British, is two weeks. But for the ease of this podcast, let's agree that Saturnalia more or less evened out to a seven-day feast. Saturnalia began with a visit to Saturn's temple at the Forum. Inside the temple, the statue of Saturn, whose feet were normally bound with wool, would be unbound. The god was now released from his bond, which means things were about to get wild. Once Saturn was free, he was all about smashing the social classes, destroying traditional roles, and in general, fucking your shit up. The statue of Saturn was hollow, and after he was unbound, the next step would be to fill him up with olive oil, which was symbolic of his agricultural duties. I don't know, that just makes me laugh a little bit. (laughs) What is the point of that? Do they just put a spigot on his foot at the end and let you drain it out? Are you saying that they turn their god into a kegerator? Right, I... (laughs) I mean, I think that's totally in keeping with the spirit of the season. Olive oil, kegerator, yeah. I mean, I also think Saturn would totally be up for being turned into a kegerator. (laughs) Anyway, so there was olive oil. There was a spigot. It was an olive oil kegerator. There would be an animal sacrifice at the temple. Fertility rituals would also be performed at Saturn's temple, which makes sense because Saturn was the god of the harvest. How many times have we said that? Jen? I mean, I don't know. But if you're playing a drinking game and Saturn would encourage you to, and we encourage you to drink responsibly. But if you are, I suspect that every time you hear god of the harvest, you're going to take a drink. After the rites were performed, there was a public banquet where Electisternium, or an image of Saturn, was in attendance. According to Macrobius, this feast was held just outside the Temple of Saturn. The statue of Saturn was given his own feasting couch so that he could watch over the festivities. The people attending the feast would shout, Yo Saturnalia! That's spelled I-O, Saturnalia. And it's pronounced Yo, right Jen? Yep, it's pronounced yo. Over here in the UK, when people say oi, they kind of always say it like they're shouting like, hey, they go oi, and that's usually spelt like O-I. Oh, is it? Oh, right. As opposed to O-Y, which is like Yiddish or something, right? Yeah, it's not like oi is an exasperation. It's more like, oi, where are you going there? Like, hey. Oh, interesting. Anyway, so what this means is happy Saturnalia. Livy states in his History of Rome that, quote, For a day and a night, the cry of the Saturnalia resounded throughout the city, and the people were ordered to make that day a festival and observe it as such forever. And I wanted to include that quote because it gets across the actual fervor that overtook the city when Saturnalia began. People would shout to each other, Yo, Saturnalia! Yo, Saturnalia! 
Yo, Saturnalia in the streets. And as the festivities and drinking were on, you could also, by the way, make a drinking game out of every time we say yo, Saturnalia. Yo, Saturnalia. Saturn would approve. <laughs> anyway, this would be shouted in the streets, and this cry would be directed at anyone people saw passing by. Friends, neighbors, randos in the street, anyone. And it was meant to be returned with an equally exuberant and super jolly, Yo, Saturnalia. Yo, Saturnalia. Yo, Saturnalia. We're just going to keep doing this, guys. So, <laughs> If that's how you're playing your drinking game, you're probably already a little tipsy. And we suggest that you alternate every other drink with some water because otherwise you may be in trouble. I mean, the elephants would just drink. Yeah, I mean, if you're a war elephant, you should just be drunk by now. Hey, I'm thrilled that you're listening to us. Thank you so much for traveling into our world and listening to this podcast. But also, I really hope you're drunk on your human gall cocktail. <laughs> right. I think we've looked at our stats for the podcast and we've noticed we do have a significant war elephant contingent. Well, war elephants and vampire penguins, because the secret's out about those. If you're drinking blood, we're not going to judge. Don't tell us where you got it. Moving on. People dressed up for this feast in Saturn's temple, and they brought a kind of potluck assortment of food. Slaves were allowed to wear the pileus, or the felt caps of a freedman. This was meant to demonstrate the freedom of the season. That's like kind of crappy for the slave, right? How does it feel for a slave to get to wear the hat, but still not get to be free? So a lot of slaves and servants weren't able to write, so their account of the festival has not come through into modern day. The only accounts we have of Saturnalia are from the middle classes and the aristocracy. So we don't actually know what it was like for a servant during this time or for just an average family. We only know what survives from the, the wealthy upper echelons. Like, I don't think that it necessarily would feel really good. Things are kind of upended in a certain way, but you still have certain inequities kind of rubbed in your face. It was a really fun, amazing time. And, you know, the idea was to upend everything. But the question is, did they? Instead of wearing togas, colorful syntheses, the uh, the idea behind them was, was they were a relaxed garment, sort of like a robe or robe and tunic combo. They were brightly colored. Think of them as the ancient world's stretchy pants or trousers, if you're British and having a little laugh at pants, that you wear at Thanksgiving when you know you're going to eat all the turkey and have forsaken seeing your toes for a couple of days. Yeah, you just don't want to have a tight belt on, I guess. It's your velour tracksuit. So these were worn to celebrate the abandonment of social norms. People would bring their own bread, white napkins and food, mostly finger foods, sweets, cakes and cookies. These dishes would become traditions the way we have traditional foods at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And this would mark the beginning of seven days of feasting and systematically overthrowing the rigid social structure of Rome. Yo Saturnalia, indeed. Yo Saturnalia. I know, you gotta answer my call. <laughs> I can't leave you hanging with the Yo Saturnalia. You can't. That is like the rule number one of Saturnalia. Do not, not answer someone else's Yo Saturnalia. Right, Saturn would disapprove. And so would Caracalla, but he disapproves of everything, so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> According to Lucian's Saturnalia, the god Saturn declared that, quote, During my week, the serious is barred. No business allowed. Drinking, noise, and games, and dice, appointing of kings, and feasting of slaves, singing naked, clapping of frenzied hands, an occasional ducking of cork faces in icy water, such are the functions over which I preside. The ducking of corked faces, I had to look this up, and this is a really weird one. A corked face is a face that has been smeared in 
soot. And I'm not sure why people would get their faces smeared in soot for Saturnalia, but I had a few guesses. First, this could literally be one of the few times in the winter where people who worked in kitchens or other places where their faces were likely to get sooty got a chance to leave their posts or drunkenly dare each other to stick their faces in icy water. I guess that was a thing. This is probably a chance for slaves or the king of Saturnalia to command others to smear soot on their faces and play an ancient world drinking game that involved ducking your head in icy water. So now that Saturn was on the loose, everyone got into the swing of celebrating. First, houses in the surrounding bushes and trees were decorated with boughs of greenery, including ivy and holly, which was sacred to Saturn. This tradition of bringing greenery inside is similar to what we do today for Christmas. The ancient Romans also hung small ornaments of tin on bushes and trees and lit up trees and crevices of their houses with small oil lamps or candles, giving an effect similar to what we have today with modern fairy lights or Christmas lights for your Americans. Lots of tiny little lights to brighten up the dark days and nights. This was meant to help celebrate the returning of the sun. Next came the days of feasting. During Saturnalia, the social order was relaxed, and slaves, women, and children were given freedoms that were denied to them throughout the rest of the year. Slaves were allowed to disrespect their masters without fear of punishment. Women could speak freely to their husbands and other men in their lives without fearing reprisals. They were free to talk back to their husbands and may have had more freedom of movement. Everyone got to sit where they wanted in the Colosseum. There was restrictions on where women could sit, right? There were, and during Saturnalia, these were relaxed, so people had more freedom to sit in different areas that had never been open to them before. Ancient Roman civilization was really all about making sure that your face was rubbed in your social status at every point. Totally, and during Saturnalia, it was the opposite. It was like, well, the mob is going to have the mob's rule, and they're going to do what they want for seven days. But I feel like with such a rigidly hierarchical society, maybe they needed that safety vent, you know? It kind of reminds me of the purge a little bit, and it's the seven days wherein anything goes. I mean, not murder. You couldn't murder people. So the purge is a series of horror movies where for one night, any crime you want to commit, including murder, is legal. So it's complete anarchy and chaos in the streets. And it's kind of takes some of its genesis from Saturnalia, which for seven days, everything was relaxed and people did things that they normally could never do. Including murder, but we'll get to that. Anyway, so people were allowed to sit wherever they wanted at the Colosseum, which is actually kind of a big thing. Mm -hmm. And gambling, which was normally really strongly prohibited, was allowed. Even children, who were really frowned on for gambling were allowed to gamble, though they were only given nuts or dried fruits to gamble with. And people got really, really, really drunk at Saturnalia. Public and excessive drunkenness was a thing that wasn't normally acceptable in society. They watered their wine. And people did get really tipsy, but you weren't supposed to. It was not classy behavior. But during Saturnalia, it was something that was encouraged and celebrated. Catalyst the Poet declared that Saturnalia was the best of days, and you can see why. For seven days, the only job the wealthy, the poor, the freedmen, and the slaves had was to feast and drink. Women and slaves got to tell it like it was, vent a year's worth of frustration about their masters and husbands, and that is exactly what they did. They ate... They spoke their minds, they drank, they ate some more, and you guessed it, they drank. This sounds like the greatest holiday. But more importantly, they upended the normal social order. Slaves would be fed before their masters, with the slaves feasting first and then resetting the tables for their masters. And that just seems like one of those digs against the slaves, where it's like, yeah, you can feast before your master, but you also have to set the table. 
Totally. And when I was doing the research for this, I was like, well, what exactly did it mean that they got to eat first? Did it mean that they got the better portions of meat and feasting and the masters for a change had to have more of the slaves portions? Is that what happened? I couldn't find the answer to this anywhere, but I was just really, really curious. Like, what did it mean that they got to eat first? And how is that different from every day? It wouldn't be that different, would it? Because they're still stuck you know, setting the table and facilitating things for the masters. And it's very clear that the social order hasn't quite been upended that much. I bet the slaves and the servants were the people who still had to clean up the mess after Saturnalia. Yeah, except that the slaves got to eat first, and maybe that meant they got to eat the better food. We don't know. In wealthy households, a Saturnalicious princeps... Saturnalicious. That's what it was called. We're probably pronouncing it wrong. Would be selected amongst the servants by drawing lots. Saturnalicious princeps roughly translated means king of Saturnalia. And from now on, we're just going to call them the king of Saturnalia because I can't with Saturnalicious. Right. And it was always a dude. So king. Yes, it was always a dude. The king of Saturnalia was chosen from amongst the lowest ranked people in any household. So it would usually be a slave or servant. He was a mock king whose job it was to keep the party going all festival long. The king of Saturnalia got to run the show. If you look too sober and serious, the king could command you to down that cup of wine. Trying to hide away in the corner, the king would find you. So you really couldn't be an introvert during Saturnalia. No, you couldn't. I mean, there are some people who tried. We'll talk about them later. Right. Noted Saturnalia introverts. Noted Saturnalia Scrooges. (laughs) Right. There's a very famous anecdote from when Nero was chosen as the king of Saturnalia. And I just have so many questions about this because he never should have been eligible for that role. Right. Nero should never have been king of Saturnalia because he's already king or emperor. He chose himself, basically, so that he could just aggrandize himself. I mean, that's a very Nero thing to do. When Nero was the king of Saturnalia, he forced his stepbrother Britannicus to sing in front of the entire feast in order to embarrass him. Britannicus was deathly shy, and also he might have had epilepsy, we're not sure. Nero probably thought this was a great way to give his stepbrother a panic attack. Talk about sibling rivalry and abuse of power. But actually, this backfired. Britannicus totally out-Saturnalia'd Nero, because Britannicus actually had a really excellent singing voice, much to Nero's chagrin, because Nero totally wanted to make it as a musician on top of his day job as emperor, and used to perform on stage, and have his Praetorian guards block the doors of the theater so nobody could leave, because Nero was a talentless hack. Britannicus sang a really sad song, possibly ad-libbed, which is super talented, because I can't imagine him just having the song, like, up his sleeve, but maybe he did, I don't know, about how he'd been thrown over his emperor in favor of Nero, which made everybody feel bad for Britannicus and look on Nero as the villain. That was, according to Tacitus, the point when Nero decided to assassinate Britannicus. And that actually makes sense for Saturnalia, because Saturnalia is when you take stock of the year and decide who you're going to assassinate, who gets to live, who gets to die, and just figure out what your to-do list is for the next year. It's kind of like New Year's Eve in some ways towards the end of the festival. What do you want to bring into the new year? What was good? What was bad? Who needs to go? How are you going to get rid of them? You don't want to repeat your mistakes like letting people live who shouldn't be allowed to live. (laughs) (laughs) And that could be your stepbrother, an emperor, you know, take your pick. You know, New Year's resolutions, Saturnalia edition. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. 
Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. When those those legends get here, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) You're here. You're here already. No, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The thing. That's we the didn't problem. realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and didn't realize <laughs> well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into, right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. So we actually tell you more about how Britannicus dies in Locusta the Poisoner, which is a really great episode, really tragic story. Rest in peace, Britannicus. And Nero definitely gets his too. We talk about that in Praetorian Guard Part 2, if you're interested in hearing about how Nero died. So let's get back to Saturnalia. The king of Saturnalia could also command you to strip naked and go door to door to your neighbor's home singing funny songs. So the ancient Romans kind of just caroled the way we did, but naked. If you're caroling with clothes on, you're doing it wrong. For the seven days of the festival, in the wealthier households of Rome, the king of Saturnalia was the actual king and his word was law. And that word was all about creating chaos. Because chaos was the reason for the season. Praise Saturn. Praise Saturn! In addition... In addition to keeping the party going, the king of Saturnalia's duties included making the sacrifices to the penites, or the household gods during the festival. And that job was normally given to the highest ranking slave or servant. So the fact that a low rank slave would do this is kind of insulting. Why is that insulting? It was an honor given to the highest ranking slave or servant in the house, usually a male slave or servant. And it might have been something that you worked your whole life to get. And for a week, someone else is given that job. I mean, it does make sense that somebody like a higher ranking slave who has just like this very small territory of power could be really possessive over that. So, yeah, people might have feelings about it. And I feel like that's just one more sliver of this experience, like how it would be for slaves and servants and like really low ranking people that we just don't hear about. So during the festivities, there were a variety of entertainments, including spectacles in the arena. 
These spectacles included incredibly popular gladiatorial games, which only occurred 10 to 12 times a year. Many of these games coincided with Saturnalia. On average, there would be 10 days of games throughout the month of December, all funded with the money from the treasury of Saturn because Saturn had his own treasury. Of course he did. He also had his own internal reservoir of olive oil, so why not? Well, I mean, maybe he was selling the olive oil to get more money, but why did he need to do that? He could just eat people and take their money. That's a good point. Why is why he's just like roaming the streets, eating people, distributing olive oil, and taking money for the treasury? But only only for seven days. <laughs> From around the third century AD, it's recorded that the gladiators who died during the Saturnalia holiday were offered up as sacrifices to the god. They weren't explicitly killed as human sacrifices, but they were used as sacrifices if they died. And there was a specific reason for that. One of Saturn's romantic partners, Lua, was the goddess of destruction and death. This romantic connection represented Saturn's dual nature, his wild side that came out to cause chaos during Saturnalia. The sacrifices of gladiators were meant to satiate Saturn's dark side. This practice harkens back to a possibly mythical time when the worship of Saturn demanded human sacrifices. There's even a myth about how Hercules, you know, the guy totally known for his emotional intelligence and moral complexity. Yeah, he was totally all about emotional intelligence and moral complexity with a club. Hercules had a club that he whacked people with on the head. Not to beat that home. But anyway, the story goes that Hercules came upon this practice of human sacrifice and told the people of Italy to knock it off because he was a sensitive guy. Instead, they could offer effigies or just light some candles to symbolize the light of their souls being offered to Saturn. But the thing with this myth is it just smacks of someone trying to rewrite history or mythology without a real understanding of what the festival represented or who Hercules was. Saturn's time was wild and vibrant. It was life at its most raw and epic. And yes, there was feasting, there was drinking, and sometimes there was death. But Saturn didn't do anything in halves. This is the guy who ate his babies. I mean, we can't stress that enough. We're not going to stop talking about how Saturn ate his babies. We just keep needing to remind you. So the idea that he'd be happy with effigies or candles, it just seems a bit far-fetched. I'm sorry. Sorry, Hercules. You either take human sacrifice completely off the table entirely, or you just do the human sacrifice. What happens at Saturnalia stays at Saturnalia. Right, including human sacrifice, I guess. Maybe. So I did hunt down an intriguing mention of real human sacrifices during Saturnalia. I don't know how reliable it is. It comes from James Fraser's The Golden Bough, where he suggests that in some time periods, the king of Saturnalia was sacrificed to Saturn after his rule came to an end. He gets this from the story of the martyrdom of St. Dacius, who lived around the 3rd century AD in Durostrum, a Roman city on the Danube River in modern-day Bulgaria. According to this story, quote, By custom, 30 days before the celebration, they selected a handsome youth, dressed him in fine clothing, accorded him royal honors, and he would go forth in public made up like Saturn. For 30 days, he would indulge in wicked deeds and immoral pleasures. On the day of the feast, he was brought before the idols and put to the sword as a sacrifice to Saturn. This is a little bit suspect because saints' hagiographies or stories of saints' lives aren't really known for being really historically accurate. However, this story does line up with other sacrificial king practices that happened throughout the ancient world, not as much in Rome, but in lots of other places. The ancient Romans were not big fans of human sacrifice. It was very rare, although it did occasionally happen, but it's entirely possible that human sacrifice was once part of Saturn-worshipping traditions that predated the Romans. The ancient Greeks, remember, also worshipped Kronos, and they did do human sacrifice. 
sacrifices. So the arena spectacles also included women fighting other women or men, women fighting dwarves, and cranes being hunted by dwarves. This is just weird. Yeah, it was really weird. So the atmosphere at these events was super laid back, and in addition to getting to sit wherever you wanted, there was also free food. Figs, nuts, dates, and bread were passed down the rows in the arena so that women, children, men, slaves, and senators all got a free meal while they watched the spectacles. So the concession stand was just basically open. Praise Saturn. Praise Saturn. On the final day of Saturnalia, gifts were exchanged, and these gifts ranged from gag or prank gifts to small tokens. That's not a very big range. Yeah, it was a lot about the gag gift, really. I didn't see anyone giving extravagant iPads or MacBooks or bikes for Christmas. Sorry. (laughs) No ponies. I didn't see any ponies or beautiful necklaces, if you're listening. You all know by now I love shiny things. New sound recording equipment. Lovely, lovely stacks of research books. Yeah, those were also not included in the Saturnalia gift lineup, but they should be. What was included were candles, writing tablets, because even back then, mom was like, I need you to be doing your work now. And knuckle bones, as well as sigillaria, or small wax or terracotta figurines. These small gifts still exist today. You can see their legacy in the Christmas crackers of Europe or the stocking. It's possible the candles and terracotta figurines harken back to the time when worshipping Saturn involved human sacrifices. And these were the more humane substitutes people eventually settled on. If all this actually happened, it was very far back in history and not well recorded and probably had nothing to do with Hercules. Sorry, Hercules. No one knows exactly how old Saturnalia was. The earliest mention we found was in 217 BC, right after the Battle of Lake Trasimene during the Second Punic War, where Hannibal brutally crushed the Roman army, resulting in over 15,000 Roman casualties versus just 1,500 on Hannibal's side. It was a massacre. In Livy's History of Rome, he states that after the battle, there was such a rash of evil omens and people in Rome were so superstitious, they basically thought that this defeat was because the gods were displeased with them in some way, and they made special intercessions with the gods. These included a lot of animal sacrifices sacrifices, lavish offerings of gold and silver to Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva, and in the middle of December, a public feast was prepared, sacrifices were made, and quote, for a day and a night, the cry of the Saturnalia resounded throughout the city, and the people were ordered to make that day a festival and observe it as such forever. It sounds here like Livy is saying that Saturnalia was actually introduced at this time, after the Battle of Lake Trasimene, as a special way of appeasing the gods, but other sources suggest that what actually happened was that the holiday was reformed, and key elements such as the public banquets, the animal sacrifices, and the cries of Yo Saturnalia were added. Yo Saturnalia! Yo Saturnalia! So... The celebration was definitely older than 217 BC, but it was starting to take a familiar shape by then. Another key aspect of the holiday, the King of Saturnalia doesn't appear before the beginning of the empire. The official date on that is 27 BC. It very likely started as a dig at the first emperor, Augustus, who gave himself the title of princeps, meaning first citizen. The reason he did this was because he was trying to avoid the title of king or emperor, like the plague, at the time of the transition from republic to empire. A lot of people still wanted to believe that their country was a republic at heart. Julius Caesar had just gotten stabbed in the Senate chamber for being too obvious about his power grabbing. Yeah, he got a little bit too grabby. And the senators got stabby. (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) We did not plan that. That was totally like off the cuff. And that was a total Saturnalia dad joke for you. You're welcome. Jen with the dad jokes. Actually, I participated in the dad joke. It was us, both of us. 
We're a team. If you get Christmas crackers, it's the kind of joke you'd find in a Christmas cracker. Gosh, we are so on theme right now. How are we so Saturnalia? Oh, yo Saturnalia. Yo Saturnalia, praise Saturn. Praise Saturn. But the aristocracy were canny enough to see the title for what it really was. Augustus considered himself a king. And once a year, the aristocracy got their own back on the emperor by choosing a king of Saturnalia, a mock king, chosen from the lowest people in the household, a person who got to have all the powers of a king or emperor for a few days before the social order was once again slapped down on them. The king of Saturnalia was basically just a way to make fun of Augustus for his king-like behavior, is what you're saying. Totally. He was, like, totally self-aggrandized, and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're gonna, we're gonna show you. We're gonna make fun of you in every household. <laughs> every household is gonna make fun of you thinking you're the king of us. We're on it. Yeah. Oh, man. This is just such Roman humor. You know, there's a lot of irony. There's a lot of very sharp digging going on. There's a lot of subtlety. And the thing about that too, Jenny, is it only happened in the wealthy household. They may have had mock kings in the poorer households, but this was definitely the aristocracy asserting their claim back on Augustus of you're just as common as mud. Not everyone got into the Saturnalia spirit, though. Pliny the Younger, who lived from 61 to 113 AD and was the famous witness to the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which buried Pompeii, was a total Grinch when it came to Saturnalia. He was the kind of person who just couldn't even with the holiday. Instead, he locked himself away in his writing cave and totally ditched the entire thing. Scrooge. In his letters, Pliny wrote, quote, when I retire to this garden summer house, I fancy myself a hundred miles away from my villa and take especial pleasure in it at the feast of the Saturnalia, when, by the license of that festive season, every other part of my house resounds with my servants' mirth, thus I neither interrupt their amusements nor they my studies. Lame. So lame, Pliny. Take that toga off, get your party rags on, and have some fun. Yeah, put on your party rags. What's wrong with you? I wanted to say glad rags. That's what I was looking for, not party rags. I don't know what a party rag is. Yeah, <laughs> like, did that, that came out as party rags. I was just like, what is that? What are, wait, what's the difference between glad rags and party rags? Glad rags means like your nice, fun party clothes. Anyway, so another Saturnalia Scrooge was Seneca the Younger, who lived from 4 BC to 65 AD. He wasn't quite as bad as Pliny, but you can see his reluctance to totally embrace the Saturnalia spirit. In his letters, Seneca wrote, quote, the whole mob has let itself go in pleasures and that, quote, it is now the month of December when the greatest part of the city is in a bustle. Loose reins are given to public dissipation. Everywhere you may hear the sound of great preparations as if there were some real difference between the days devoted to Saturn and those for transacting business. Obviously, there's a giant difference there, Seneca. Some are the days where Saturn lets loose his dark side and some are the days where Saturn does not let loose his dark side. Come on, you just were at the temple pouring the olive oil in. Anyway, he goes on to say, quote, were you here, I would willingly confer with you as to the plan of our conduct, whether we should eve in our usual way or to avoid singularity, both take a better supper and throw off the toga. So he's saying, should we just throw off our togas and put on our party rags or glad rags, our rags? I don't know. <laughs> and have a fun time or... Dressed in a sack or, you know, a synthesia or whatever that was. Mm -hmm. Synthesius. Yeah. I remembered it. Yeah. Anyway, but nobody was down on Saturnalia the way Asterius of Amasia was down on Saturnalia. This was the biggest Saturnalia Scrooge we could find. As the Roman Empire transitioned into Christianity, there were some serious conflicts between the ancient tradition of Saturnalia and the new 
more sober holiday celebrated by the Christians. By 400 AD, Asterius of Amasia, a bishop living in Pontus, you know, where you shouldn't eat the ducks because they're all poisonous. The ducks in Pontus are poisonous. Don't eat the ducks. Ancient history fangirl rule to live by. Exactly. And Pontus was now part of the Eastern Roman Empire. Asterius preached a sermon against Saturnalia that gives us a window into the holiday's dark side. As in the dark side of its dark side. Because Saturnalia was all dark, wasn't it? Well, I think so, because it was the holiday where Saturn let loose his dark side. So it's, it was already like a dark side. So this is the dark side of the dark side. I guess, but it was also a holiday about the returning sun and the light. So it's kind of like by the end of the holiday, the light should be coming back. Yeah, that does make sense. It's complicated. It's not all dark side. No, you know, it was quite nice to have like feasting and relaxing of, you know, social traditions. So I don't know if it was all dark. I guess it depends on what you consider the dark side. True. By now, in this region of the world, actual Saturnalia had been appropriated into a Christian New Year's feast day. But some of the ancient customs still persisted, including the figure of the king of Saturnalia, who encouraged everyone to chaos and drunken revelry, and a general sense of upending of the social order, because that's his job. Don't judge. If you are the king of Saturnalia, that's what you're supposed to do. Here's what it was like in Amasia during the New Year around the 400s AD, according to Asterius. Quote, This is misnamed a feast, being full of annoyance, since going out of doors is burdensome, and staying within doors is not undisturbed. For the common vagrants and the jugglers of the stage, dividing themselves into squads and hordes, hang about every house. The gates of public officials they besiege with a special persistence, actually shouting and clapping their hands, until he that is beleaguered within, exhausted, throws out to them whatever money he has, and even what is not his own. And these mendicants, going from door to door, follow one after another, and, until late in the evening, there is no relief from this nuisance, for crowd succeeds crowd, and shout, shout, and loss, loss. But wait, there's more. Quote, And if a man become prosperous by honest industry, incredible as that may seem, he is dogged, he is flogged. And if there be in the house any little thing for the support of his wife and wretched children, this he lets go and sits him down hungry with his whole family on this glorious feast day. A new law this of evil custom that annoyance be celebrated as a feast and a man's want be called a festival. And wait, he's not done. Quote, But as to the sturdy and honest farmers, what things this feast day brings to them? It renders the city a place to be shunned rather than visited, and they fly from it more timidly than hares from nets. Such as are found within it are flogged, treated with... I'm sensing a theme here, and the theme is being flogged. Treated with drunken violence, what they have in their hands is snatched from them. They are warred upon in time of peace, are jeered at and mocked with words and deeds. I mean, it kind of sounds like SantaCon. Yeah, and SantaCon, for people who may not have ever experienced it, I've experienced it in London, and I know Jenny's experienced it in New York, is <laughs> an unofficial day where, and it happens on the same day around the world, people just dress up like Santa, and they are pretty much living the Saturnalia dream. They are rowdy. They are in their best Saturnalia clothes, which happens to be a Santa suit. I mean, Those suits are very colorful. They've got the good elastic waistband, so you don't have to worry if you drink or eat too much. Sometimes they put the beards on, sometimes they don't. It's just, it's insane. I've been thrown up on by a Santa. If you go on the SantaCon website, they don't encourage their members to get completely trashed, but I have experienced this. I remember when I first moved to New York, walking down the street, 
I don't know, one o'clock or something on a random day. And somebody came out of a bar in front of me dressed full on in a Santa suit with a beard and everything. And I did not know about SantaCon. And this person just like was staggering drunk at like in the middle of the afternoon. I thought they were going to fall into the street and they like bent over right next to me and just vomited copiously onto the sidewalk and then kept going. And I was just like, what the heck just happened? What was that? Do we feel bad for the people of the town or do we think that Asterius is a giant bummer? It's really tough. I mean, we're kind of moving into the bit where Christianity is taking the ascendancy and there is a definitely a feeling of demonizing these older traditions that existed. And yeah, I totally get where he's coming from, that people could be quite rowdy and, and ruckus and stuff like that. But I wonder... It might get violent. It might get violent. And Saturnalia could get violent. That's what could happen. But so can SantaCon, you know? Right. Is there some exaggeration and some demonizing? I think what's interesting is this idea of giving gifts to assuage the crowds, because we know that that existed in Saturnalia. And it was the time when the government actually was a bit more giving to its people, especially the people who might need it a little bit more. They weren't actually just asking for gifts from rich people. They were asking for gifts from like anybody, which could be poor people, too, which he talks about. Yeah, and it could be. And that does eventually lead into the very Christian tradition of going wassailing, which is where you and a bunch of drunken mates carol from door to door and refuse to leave people alone until they put some booze into the bowl. But Asterius, and again, I just want to remind you, he was a bishop, reserves his particular scorn for the city guards and other members of the military, whose behavior during this time was particularly Saturnalia-like. Quote, their military discipline is relaxed and slackened. They make sport of the laws and the government of which they have an appointed guardians, for they ridicule and insult the august government. They mount a chariot as though upon a stage. They appoint pretended lictors and publicly act like buffoons. This is the nobler part of their rivalry. But there are other doings. How can one mention them? Does not the champion, the lion-hearted man, the man who, when armed, is the admiration of his friends and the terror of his foes, loose his tunic to his ankles, twine a girdle about his breast, and use a woman's sandal, put a roll of hair on his head in feminine fashion, and ply the distaff full of wool. And with that right hand, which once bore the trophy, draw out the thread, and changing the tone of his voice, utter his words in a sharper feminine treble. What's that smell? Something burning? <laughs> <laughs> it's toxic masculinity. <laughs> and um, I, I have to go for a little bit because my eyeballs have once again rolled to the back of my head. Jen has to go and take care of her eyeballs. So I will be reading the next section. Being a Saturnalia Scrooge was unfortunate, but there were other people who used Saturnalia as their chance to take things way too far and plot much more serious harm and destruction during the festival. And now we're going to get into Saturnalian conspiracies. It wasn't easy being an emperor during Saturnalia, and this was the only time during the year your power wasn't absolute. There was a lot of chaos in the streets, your guards were slackened, people had more freedom of movement, and if you were an emperor, you always had a target on your back. Sometimes things did go too far. Jen, are you back? Are you back yet? I'm back. I fished my eyes forward. We're all right. You had to open a window to air out the toxic masculinity in the room. Light a candle, pray Saturn, you know, it's fine. So now we're going to talk about one of my favorite emperors in history because he was just so over the top. 
And that man is the Emperor Commodus. And he was a guy who loved to take things way, way, way too far. And he met his end just after Saturnalia. Commodus is a Donatio Memoriae. You spot him at 500 paces. Absolutely. That is the aim of this podcast, guys. And he was assassinated on the 31st of December. The plot to kill him had been crafted over Saturnalia, when the people around him had more freedom to come and go as they pleased. The first attempt at assassinating Commodus had taken place a few days earlier, when his mistress, Marcia, had poisoned his food. But Commodus had vomited up the poison. So a group of conspirators got together and decided on a final course of action. Commodus was strangled to death in his bath by his wrestling partner. Commodus loved to take part in gladiatorial bouts. And he had a personal trainer and wrestling partner named Narcissus, who had a lot of unfettered access to the emperor. So it makes total sense that he would be the one to strangle Commodus in his bathtub because he would have been able to get close to Commodus and actually carry out this plot because he was trusted. Is this another um, emperor who died in the bath? Yeah, he died in his tub. He was having a soak and he got strangled. The end. I mean, it, it wouldn't really be in the tub. Like they had, you know, really elaborate baths. So it would be more like a public swimming pool where the water was either really hot or tepid or cold. Except if it was the emperor's private bath, it wouldn't be public. So, okay. We all know that he died in a luxurious swimming pool sized pool of warm water, luxuriating and probably getting over his food poisoning and hangover and actual poisoning. But, you know, I love the idea of it being a bathtub. Don't take that away from me. Give me the Saturnalia gift. <laughs> okay, Jen, here it is my gift to you. Commodus in a bathtub getting strangled. <laughs> Wrapped up under my tree. Done. <laughs> <laughs> so another victim of Saturnalia was poor Geta. Geta was the younger brother of the infamous disapproving Caracalla. We talked about these two in Child Emperors Part 1, Sharks in the Womb, but the thumbnail version is this. Geta and Caracalla were brothers and for a very short time served as joint Roman emperors. These two violently disapproved of each other. They hated each other so hard that eventually something had to give. And during Saturnalia in 211 AD, Caracalla plotted Geta's assassination. Caracalla called for a peace meeting, asking his mother to come and mediate between them, and his mom had been trying for ages to make peace between the two boys, so she eagerly agreed. But instead of making peace, Caracalla stabbed his brother to death, and Geta died in his mother's arms. And what a way to ruin the holiday, Caracalla. And finally, Saturnalia was also the breeding ground for the Catiline Conspiracy. The Catiline Conspiracy took place during 63 BC. According to the article, Saturnalia, Merriment and Murder Plots in Ancient Rome by Alexandra Turney, Saturnalia's, quote, hedonistic pleasures were viewed as a convenient distraction for those with dark intentions. The Catiline conspiracy, which involved plans to commit arson and murder senators in an attempt to overthrow the Roman Republic, was deliberately scheduled for Saturnalia. Catiline, the senator who led the conspiracy, must have hoped the majority of Romans would be too drunk and distracted to notice that he was up to no good. Unfortunately for Catiline, Cicero remained alert, even during the dissipation of Saturnalia, the plot was exposed and Catiline was forced to flee Rome, end quote, proving that it doesn't pay to drink that second bowl of wine during Saturnalia, because if Cicero hadn't kept his wits about him, the Republic would have been in for a very dire time. And Cicero is one of my favorite names in all of antiquity because it means chickpea. It does? So yeah, there are two reasons why he got the name chickpea. One is that the tip of his nose had a cleft in it shaped like a chickpea. And the other reason is that his family made their fortune from farming chickpeas, which to me seems much more likely. 
So whenever you think of Cicero, think of a dude with a nose, the tip of which is shaped just like a chickpea. So anyways, Saturnalia really was the best of times for the ancient Romans. It was a time when for a few days the powerless had power, those without voices were allowed to speak up, the servants got to eat before their masters, although they still had to set the table for their masters, which was lame, and everything was bright and chaotic and visceral. According to some, the ancient Roman Empire ended with Alaric's sack of Rome in 410 AD because Jenny does not like to have a podcast that doesn't mention Alaric of the Visigoths. I mean, if Alaric of the Visigoths is not in your podcast episode, are you even podcasting? It's the sound of one hand clapping, isn't it? It's the eternal question. Exactly. Just process that. Sit with it for a minute. (laughs) Happy Saturnalia! Praise Saturn. Uh, (laughs) To others, the Roman Empire continued well past that time. And some historians argue that it never really ended, just changed. The same can be said of Saturnalia. Parts of the Saturnalia holiday continued well after the Romans were all dead and buried. For instance, the king of Saturnalia is very similar to the British tradition of the Lord of Misrule, a medieval Christmas custom. In Scotland, they called it the Abbot of Unreason, which is just brilliant. And in France, what would they call it, Jenny? The Prince des Sceaux. My French is a little, little rusty. Her French is much better than mine. This character was usually a peasant or someone not high up in the church who presided over a wild, drunken celebration. And the legacy of Saturnalia survives today, notwithstanding that Saturday is named after the baby-eating god, and of course so is the planet Saturn, named after Saturn. Saturnalia traditions also figure prominently in modern Christmas traditions. You can see it in the traditional British pantomimes performed by each Christmas where the roles are reversed. So these pantomimes, I actually had to get Jen to tell me about them. The British pantomimes are plays of traditional fairy tales like Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Jack and the Beanstalk, Puss in Boots, and they do them every Christmas and they're very sort of traditional, but they're traditional for being untraditional. They're traditional in that they are fairy tales that most people just know, so you're not really getting any surprises in terms of the story here, right? You're not getting any surprises in terms of the story, but what you're getting surprises in is the casting. So the principal male role, like Prince Charming or Jack from Jack and the Beanstalk, are always played by a girl. And the role of the dame is always played by a man. What's the role of the dame? There's just an older woman character in most of the plays because they follow a very similar pattern. So you can go to any different pantomime and they will have similar elements. So you'll always have like different gender casting on roles that would traditionally be female or male. They're really good fun. They're ruckus. They're funny. They're good for the whole family, but they're also sort of ribald and silly. And yeah, they're a big part of the Christmas tradition that's clearly come down from Saturnalia. Saturnalia is also there in the holiday tradition of gift giving, which actually many cultures include in their celebrations. The Saturnalia gifts were often gag gifts. And I had a tradition of getting gag gifts in my stocking when I was a kid. We celebrate Christmas, too. We get like um, funny underwear and funny figurines that my mom found. Usually it was my mom who was buying a lot of the, the Christmas stocking stuff. And you can also see the legacy of Saturnalia in the Christmas crackers that you get in British stores over Christmas. In the Christmas crackers, you get funny gag gifts and paper hats that you wear. You do. You get usually a very corny joke. You get a little paper crown hat that you put on and wear throughout the whole meal. And you get some kind of little toy. Sometimes it's a set of jacks or a paperclip or a little mirror, a nail file. There have been all kinds of weird things. Knuckle bones. Commodus being strangled in a bathtub. (laughs) The fan art that your co-host had made for you. You never know what you're going to get. 
Saturnalia is also there in the greenery we bring into our houses and the fact that holly, one of the plants associated with Christmas, was also sacred to Saturn. It's there in the fairy lights that some people use to decorate their houses. Those harken back to the Roman tradition of festooning their homes with candles and lamps to bring back the sun. And it's there in the drunken revelries of New Year's where you get permission to let loose, knock back a few too many, and maybe do something ill-advised like puke in a cab or drunk dial your ex or streak or you know assassinate somebody or streak yeah (laughs) we don't approve of assassination jen does not approve of assassination i'm a little bit more agnostic i guess it depends on who we are assassinating we're not gonna name any names jenny we wouldn't because then our evil plan would be out there in the open anyway We mostly mention Christmas-related traditions just now because we both come from Christmas-celebrating traditions ourselves and because a lot of the Saturnalia traditions got carried over into Christian traditions when Christianity became more prevalent. But if you come from a non-Christian tradition and you spot some similarities with Saturnalia in your tradition, tell us about it because we think that's super interesting. And we love learning new stuff, so yeah, give us a shout. Saturnalia lives on today with its wild upheaval of traditional society, and for those of us who celebrate Christmas, it stayed with us in the liminal days between Christmas and New Year. As the year winds down and we look back on everything we've accomplished, everything we've gained and lost, and everything yet to come, that feeling of unsettled promise of something exciting lurking beyond the ordinary, waiting. That is the legacy of Saturnalia, because for seven days, anyone could be king and everyone had a voice. We will see you next year, wishing you a lovely Saturnalia and a happy new year. And if you like what we do and want to keep the conversation going, follow Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not one for social media, then please leave a review or tell your friends about the podcast. Word of mouth happens both on and offline, and we appreciate it. We massively do. Thank you so much. Yo, Saturnalia! Yo, Saturnalia! (laughs) That was my most ridiculous one yet. Praise Saturn. Wasn't that fun? God, I love that episode. I love everything about Saturnalia. I mean, wine, partying, yo, Saturnalia! Thank you all for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to Ancient History Fangirl wherever you're listening to this podcast now. I am Liv, and I love this shit. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you, Yes. 
when those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> you're here. You're here already. No. no we didn't legends. either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The thing. That's we didn't the problem. realize it until we uh, oh. started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my God. You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and didn't realize <laughs> well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how oh. lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home.